Hey guys, how you been? Good, I guess. Glad to hear it. Uh, <laughs> I had Wesley Skinner on the show with me this week. Wesley is a phenomenal cellist and music educator that uh, I stumbled across on the Facebook forum, but uh, he is actually pursuing a doctorate at ASU right now. Really fascinating ideas when it comes to arts education, education in general, that I really liked getting into him with. Um, I'm not really a classical music guy myself. Uh, I mean, I know all the hits, I enjoy it, but I don't have much of you know, a classical ear. Um, he was very accessible with how he was approaching things. It was really easy and enjoyable to talk with him. We were outside at Cornish Pasty on Mill, having a good time. Uh, maybe you can uh, go there yourself and order big old meat pie and enjoy Wesley Skinner. Starving Artist Phoenix, I'm Tony Machete. We've got Wesley Skinner with me. How are you doing today, Wesley? Doing great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, a pleasure to see it. Uh, I've been meaning to try and find like new avenues for, for musicians, because I feel like I, I know some people who are in the music scene, but nothing in your music scene. <laughs> so I was really excited to kind of stumble across you on like a forum on Facebook. So we'll just start at the very beginning. So how did you end up playing the cello? <laughs> Well, that's kind of a long story. I'll try to keep it as concise as possible. So I started actually playing the violin when I was five. And that goes back to my entire family. Well, my siblings, I have four siblings, and we all kind of started on the violin. I started with the oldest, actually. He saw Yo-Yo Ma on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which we know in the classical music world is a cellist, and he thought, that Yo-Yo Ma was playing a violin and as a young uh, oh, I think a two-year-old he went and told my mom oh I just saw the violin on TV so he I saw want... strings and a bow and he thought violin right exactly yeah. as a two-year-old that's yeah. the first thing that pops in your head oh that must be a violin yeah. and so my mom takes him to his first violin lesson and he's like that's not what I wanted to play but anyway <laughs> he got into playing the violin and ended up in orchestral conducting and I have two other siblings that are still in music, a violinist, sister Michelle. The oldest is Blair, he's the conductor, and my sister is Michelle, she's a violinist. And I have another sister, Carrie, who's a violist, and um, she's kind of in the Avenue of Arts Administration currently in Cleveland. And I have another brother who's in medicine, who's actually pursuing a double doctorate in oh Wisconsin now. So that's kind of where I got started and my mom had this rule that we all had to keep playing until we were 10 years old because like at that age it's easy to pick up something new and fun, exciting and be like, oh this is too hard and give up really quickly. Sure. So there was a bit of persistence behind the practicing, really pushing that and really continuing to do that. So I kept playing violin until I was 10 and I actually really loved hearing the cello and I had been exposed to a little bit of cello early on and then I saw actually a concert of Yo-Yo Ma, brings it back full circle to the first guy <laughs> that influenced everything. 
to kind of jump in for a second too. So, all you guys picked up because Blair picked it up. Is yes. that pretty much fair? So, Yo Yo Ma and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood really influenced his entire family's oh, worth of yeah. musicians. Totally, totally. Yeah, and that's public television right there, which hopefully we can keep that arts funding it's going. It's a whole other podcast. Yeah, so um, anyway, I, I ended up switching to cello and started studying with Bob's story in my hometown of Paducah, Kentucky. So this is pretty rural Kentucky. This is my hometown and is, I think, about 30,000 people. And so it's known to be a barge town, but it has an orchestra and Bob Story plays in the orchestra from time to time. And he taught me using the Suzuki method just as I began on violin. So there was a little bit of a method uh, uh, similarity that helped the switch, I think was helpful. And so then I uh, ended up going to the Blair School of Music in Nashville, Tennessee in my high school years and then Cleveland. Institute of Music for my bachelor's and my master's degree and that led to a broadening of my horizons for things that I found I enjoyed and music other than just playing cello like teaching cello and uh, playing in chamber ensembles which I think actually sprouted from coming from a musical family where as soon as I switched to cello, my siblings were like, "Great, we can, we can do a string quartet." Yeah, yeah, we can we can play at weddings now as a string quartet. So pretty early on, I started doing chamber music, which is something I really love, and I developed a passion for pedagogy, teaching, and orchestral performing. So I've explored a lot of different avenues of playing cello beyond just solo playing. So was there ever? I guess a moment that inspired you to lean more into the teaching side because I saw that your master's was already focused on teaching so by the time you finished your undergraduate that was already a focus of yours obviously so how, where did that come from you feel like? I'd have to say that comes from the teacher that I studied with in my undergrad Melissa Kraut who's basically created her career around teaching which is kind of a unique thing you see a lot of teachers in conservatories are top performers in their field and then they have the job because it's stable or whatever and they're great there are a lot of great performer teachers though I think some of the greatest minds in pedagogy come from a pedagogical standpoint not really a performance standpoint or sometimes you get both which is actually kind of why I came to Arizona State University because the teacher I have now he has both he's an incredible performer and has that that pedagogy mind at a high level really is able to demonstrate the artistry that he's talking about. So yeah, I think it started back in Cleveland in my undergrad. I want to jump around a little bit because since we're talking about the nature of pedagogy and all that, so I want to talk a little bit about the Suzuki method because it's something I wasn't really familiar with. Well, I, I guess I was, but I didn't know that I was familiar with it. I guess it's a lot more diffused throughout society now than, than I realized. So you you were trained on that as a child and now that's something that you focus on more as, as a teacher, right? As something that you're learning? Yeah, I'd say, yeah, I began Suzuki even before I was five. I began using that method because I had older siblings that were doing it. And so I was exposed to it, hearing it, uh, going to all of their lessons. And so I was hearing these pieces, which is uh, one of the basis of the method is rote learning and learning from the ear. They call it the mother tongue method. So uh, the idea that Shinichi Suzuki had was that, well, if Japanese 
kids can learn a language so complex as Japanese at an early age, there must be some golden <laughs> opportunity here and applying it to music. And so it's like early beginnings and rote learning, lots of repetition. You know, the parental involvement, group learning, there are lots of aspects to the Suzuki method. It's totally immersive, right? It's like, yeah. Completely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it had an early exposure to it, and so I understood it. And then, actually, at the Cleveland Institute of Music, you mentioned I have an emphasis in pedagogy in my master's degree. That was mainly because Cleveland, unlike most universities and conservatories, offers a Suzuki course. So it took me four semesters to complete the entire training course, which, you know, going out and getting each of the individual 10 levels or 11 levels could cost a thousand plus dollars per level. So, so I kind of took advantage of that early on just because that was available to me and I ran with it. And I think it offers a really stable format of graded repertoire that basically nails all of the levels of learning that you need, I think, to be a, a teacher. Because when you teach, even at a college level, you're going to run into holes in students' learning that need to be addressed and need to be filled in order for them to progress to a higher level. So I think I was able to get all those teaching points out of taking the course, and it, it offers me, you know, an opportunity to gather students from different areas. And so, yeah. I, I think I'm probably going to dwell on this a little bit because I think it's really fascinating and it's really important if you are somebody who's interested in the arts to, to think of this approach, especially if you're considered teaching it. But I was kind of curious, maybe a little bit of a loaded question, but you know, you, you said you trained at a conservatory and it seems like from what I understand of the Suzuki method, that's kind of antithetical a little bit to its approach, the idea of that you, you're kind of like auditioning for this conservatory and you're, you know, it's accepting a certain amount of people into it. it isn't the kind of the idea of it that you start off from scratch wherever you're at and, and go from there? How do you kind of marry those two? Yeah, so yeah. one of the main ideas behind the philosophy of Shinichi Suzuki is that every child can. So yeah, it's supposed to allow everybody to, because it's a self-paced uh -huh. approach. Though when you're thinking about a conservatory, that one of the ways that they keep their high status is keeping the high quality. So that's why they will only have a class of so many people. So I guess they're completely different ends of the spectrum when it comes to learning because, uh, you know, not everybody that goes, the, the idea behind the Suzuki method is not really to create someone of a high caliber playing and competition winning. It's actually, his idea was to create beautiful hearts and good citizens of the world through music. It wasn't really the end goal of being a concert performer. Interesting. Okay. So I guess what, what were the uh, what were the benefits do you feel like uh, of both sides of that, of the conservatory style approach and the Suzuki style approach? Because it seems that you've benefited from both. Right. So reacted to both, yeah. Right. So going through the process of learning the Suzuki training which is completely different from being a student going through the method yourself because I have to learn essentially how to regurgitate this information to a, a child who may not learn by listening to words but may be more from demonstration. So I think it taught me a lot about um, teaching styles 
and and learning styles of students and it it also like I mentioned before it kind of taught me all the possible teaching points and how to approach repertoire how to break it down and build it back together on top of all of the personal qualities of the philosophy that I really enjoy about the Suzuki method and at the same time it, that, that repertoire kind of brings you to the level of concerto, sonata, concert pieces, show pieces. And then going to the conservatory kind of takes me beyond that. So, so I kind of get the entire spectrum, not just the lower level and not just the upper level. Though I, I'm trying to get the entire picture here so that I can be a good teacher for every level of a student. So maybe maybe this is oversimplifying it, but maybe the Suzuki method prepares you to be in a conservatory <laughs> or to like get good enough to be in a conservatory. Yeah, I mean, I if, if you if you look at some of the most famous people that were Suzuki students, uh, Bill Prusel, the concertmaster of the Cleveland Orchestra, was a Suzuki kid. There's his parents essentially established a Suzuki school around his education. And uh, he kind of blossomed into one of the most notable violinists and teachers of orchestral playing today. So, yeah, it, it ta it's totally sets you up for the long-term performance career. It's not just to, you know, create beautiful minds and beautiful hearts, but, but I mean, some of the best players we have today came from that method. So you've mentioned the idea of, of repertoire a couple times already. So. How important is that to you as a musician, the idea of having kind of a, a stock repertoire? Oh, it's completely necessary to, <laughs> to continue to grow your repertoire. You know, I don't, I don't think there's any piece of music that's too easy to, to really dig deep into and really discover some of the beautiful aspects of what makes it music and what makes it enjoyable and what to listen to as well as to perform and also I think that it's our duty as artists today to add to the repertoire as well for instance about a year ago that's pretty close to the day it was early November last year that I was talking to a really good friend of mine Chiago Nascimento and another good friend of mine Mark Lanson who are well-established artists in the Dallas area, Dallas, Texas, and they're both composers and performing musicians, and I asked them to write sonatas for the cello. So the idea of me expanding repertoire for the cello is, is now one of my goals and one of my pursuits. And so that, that's been a year-long process. It took them about four to five months of composing to complete those pieces and it culminated in a performance in mid-April of these pieces and another American composer's music, Samuel Barber. So I did an entire program of American 20th slash 21st century works <laughs> and it's all great music. So I, I like to constantly expand my repertoire as well as help add to the repertoire. I was able to do that through a grant that I received from ASU. So it wasn't specifically to commission works, though it was, you know, for, with 
given to me to do whatever I wanted with it, and I thought that was a good use of the money, was adding to the cello repertoire and uh, helping a friend out, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, constantly growing repertoire. I'm constantly learning new pieces, always trying to expand the range of what I know in terms of where it comes from as well, because uh, for the most part, we see a lot of dead white guy music. <laughs> And, and that's just like what people tend to enjoy and program and but I think we should expand that I think I think there's plenty of music from Asia and Africa and South America that we can incorporate into our programming as well as female composers and that's actually something that I'm working with a pianist now to put together a program of some Latin American and Northern American female composers on a program of cello and piano music. That's Astrid Morales. She's actually a Mexican student that's here at ASU, also pursuing her doctorate. Now, it's funny that you can bring up kind of the, the dead white guy music, because I know that that's kind of what you're, you're doing right now. That's your most recent recital is the six uh, cello suites, right, for Bach. So, with those in particular, just because those are not only kind of an, an expected piece, like a, a, a comforting, a staple piece, exactly, yes, a staple of the, of your instrument. So is there any kind of extra baggage that comes along with performing something that's so well-known, especially, I mean, when we start the movement of the first suite, like everyone heard that whether they know it oh, or not. You're, you're talking about the cello song? Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah the cello song. Yeah, exactly. it's like whenever I'm out on the street just for fun playing cello, like, do you know the cello song? It's like, do you mean uh, Bach's G major suite prelude? <laughs> like, uh, maybe? <laughs> yeah, so totally. You know, so often I've had a single suite on a program, part of um, other pieces on a, on a program with a sonata or whatever, some other pieces. And I had never sat down to try to put more than one box suite on a program. And it's great music. It's, it's beautiful music. It's kind of hard to beat when it comes to the history of cello music. So I decided that while I'm here studying with a fantastic cellist that at one point in his life specialized in this era of music, I decided I really need to sit down and just play all of these pieces for him and get his perspective on it. And it's been amazing to get his perspective on it. So I decided to kind of immerse myself in the entire cycle of the six suites this semester and for my first six lessons I brought him the suite to my lesson and just an entire suite and we focused on that intensely through through the lesson and it's been amazing I've learned so much because so much that relates from suite to suite and I started using it to explore different avenues of programming as well to see how I could be creative with this music. So the first thing I did was I went and talked to a friend of mine, Melanie Holm, at Tempe Center for the Arts. And I said, hey, it would be really awesome to do this idea that I saw a friend of mine, Wesley Pencombe, doing. He's a cellist that performs all around the US and Europe. And he would go to a brewery, had their own brews, and he would pair Bach with 
the beer. And so she mentioned, oh yeah, we, I, I've been talking to our person with the food and, and, and drinks here at TCA and we have a connection with Husk Brewing Company here in Tempe. So I was like, that sounds awesome. Let's, let's go talk to Husk Brewing Company. So we went and had a meeting with Husk Brewing Company. They loved the idea. Put together, I, involved, I incorporated a little bit of each of the six suites with the final entire six suite on the program to kind of tell the story of the arc of the entire cycle. And, and, and it was awesome. The turnout was like four times what we expected. <laughs> and we were kind of running around trying to get all the beers for everybody because <laughs> everybody wanted a little piece of this and taste what's going on. So that was, that was a really successful event that we did. And, and then just uh, a couple weeks ago, I did the first cycle in recital of one, five, and six. And that was kind of a feat in and of itself. Uh, just to also, I'll remind you that my idea was to do this all from memory. So I, I had over an hour of music memorized that I was just me, the cello, <laughs> the stage in front of my audience. And that's how I wanted it. I wanted it to be kind of integrated into myself to the point that I could just do it without any music in front of me so I can just share how I see the music. And so, yeah, there's part one. And so then part two is going to happen December 3rd at 4 p.m. here on Mill. Probably somewhere around here, I'm not sure. <laughs> and that's going to be part of the Tempe Festival for the Arts. And I've been talking to some dancers of different disciplines of dancing to help me figure out a plan to have them choreograph dancing with box music. Because the, the essence of this music is they were dance suites, meaning each of these movements were related to a dance style of the time. So we're talking like mid-1600s, early 1700s dance styles. And your minuet, your allemand, your beret, Nothing like we would even recognize today, you know. But they but, were of the time. They yes, were, they were popular dances of the time, and even risque. There was the Sarabande, which came from Spain, and it was actually banned in Madrid for being too sensual. It was too slow. <laughs> and so the, I guess the church <laughs> decided this is just not acceptable. You're not allowed to dance to this music. You're not allowed to perform the music. You will be imprisoned if we catch you playing it because it was just that risque. You know, that's just like what popular dance is now. Like you might avoid putting that <laughs> out on some video that might have like PG-13 on it or something these days. So anyway, yeah, it. That that's kind of what I was thinking. How how can I? Uh, and, and I'm not the first person to do that, though. I, I want. I'm going to make it a, a bit different. I'm going to have kind of alternating dancers for each of the movements to kind of give the dancers a break. I've learned by uh, just recently performing with Pocket Change Crew just the other day at Tempe Center for the Arts that it's really difficult to dance for half an hour straight. They just, they've got to take breaks. So when I was performing, I had to get up and talk for a minute to get, allow them to catch their breath. And, and that was even four dancers dancing, taking turns on the dance floor. But they're break dancing. That's like some pretty intense dancing that they're doing. Though I'm, so I'm gonna in, involve 
them and ballet and we'll see what else. <laughs> that's, that's so interesting to me, just that whole idea of kind of marrying those two things. Because I saw that, you know, on your, your SoundCloud and stuff, you have some like popular covers, you know, as as done with a string quartet and that type of thing. And I, I, I really think that's an interesting concept. And I feel like there's probably something to that, just the idea that um, you can kind of marry those two things so much and that people think of classical music as, I guess, like you were saying before, like it's, it's all Baroque, it's all <laughs> white guys and stuff like that. And so, I mean, what do you do? I mean, I know you've composed some original music. What do you do in order to, I mean, approach it from maybe a more modern standpoint when you're looking at music? Well, I like to venture outside of the practice room a lot, especially when I'm looking for inspiration, not only for performing music that's already written, but also, as you mentioned, for finding inspiration for composition, etc. And so I'd say that had to have started back in my undergrad, Across the street from the Institute, there is this kind of dive bar-esque kind of folky bar called the Barking Spider, which unfortunately shut down kind of recently. Though I would go there as much as I could with my friend, and we would, you know, walk in there with our instruments to see people play music that, you know, didn't even occur to us. And we're calling ourselves professional musicians. It's like, how are we not exposing ourselves to all these different genres that are out there? I mean, if you think about it, Bach was writing for dance styles that were popular of his time. And it's really easy today for people to kind of put their nose up to some of the popular styles of today. I think Lady Gaga is doing some really amazing things, just just like any (laughs) other pop artist these days. It may be a little bit more simplified harmonically than what we're used to. Though I think it's important to expose ourselves to all of it and even try to play it. So as I was in my undergrad, my friend and I would go across the street and we'd see these people playing and they'd see us with our cases and we'd, oh, what's what's in there? You know, it's like, oh, it's a violin, it's a cello. And, and so we kind of started playing with some at the time, random people, but kind of turned into some relationships where we would actually recorded a bit and played on the local radio with some of these folk musicians writing original music. And so that was kind of my exposure to venturing into improvisation. Because they're up there, no music, they don't know what, you know, F dominant seven even is. So like. I just play this chord on the guitar, you know? (laughs) No, that's not the case with all of them. That was like one person maybe. (laughs) But they were, you know, it it really exposed me to a different side of the music world. And so, yeah, it kind of sparked this little improvisational spurt in my life that kind of allowed me to explore what I could create. And so over the past several years, I started just like putting my voice recorder on my phone on whenever I'm messing around on the cello, improvising something, whether it's live in front of people or just in the practice room or whatever. And you mentioned I, I recently wrote something original for the theater in Peoria, Theater Works, and they put on Frankenstein the theater show adapted from Mary Shelley's novel 
and they were looking for originally a cellist to improvise to the whole thing and that really intrigued me because I liked the idea of it though um, improvising to the whole thing would be quite a feat I think yeah, when you're putting on 15 <laughs> shows of it show, yeah. so I told them you know I could I could compose a score for you and basically how I approached that was I had six years of me improvising at the cello just messing around and having fun and so I have a lot of these original ideas that I plucked this one from 2013 and 2015 <laughs> and and kind of put them all together and in a cohesive way of course to create the score uh, that was then for violin and cello. So how do you approach a score like that? I mean, when you know the mood that you're trying to set, do you, is it all just music theory and applying what you know, or is it something kind of instinctual? How do you, how do you go about it like in a practical process? I think it's kind of how we approach everything at a high level is when you just kind of involve all of your experiences. So in this case, I, I have like years of music theory training from my undergrad and master's degrees where I, you know, had to be able to analyze theory at a very high and detailed level. And also it kind of at the same time, it, it goes, my experiences parallel to that, <laughs> like I mentioned, across the street, just playing whatever came to mind at, at the moment. And also, I'd say it, it, it uh, probably one of the strongest influences is the repertoire that I've studied. So uh, there's a ton of music that is just kind of flowing through my mind and my subconscious as I'm improvising. And so, uh, as I mentioned, I recorded a lot of these improvisations and it, it was more like maybe uh, an artist flipping through an idea sketchbook and picking out what ideas he might throw on a camp, uh, canvas. And um, so that, that's kind of how I approached it. I, I would kind of listen through, just kind of flipping through these voice memos. I'm like, ooh, that one is exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> and so it was all original material, though a lot of it was influenced by uh, music I was setting at the time that I was doing that improvisation so now going back to the idea of formal education I mean obviously you probably have a little bit of a bias but a lot of time in the arts community I feel like there's kind of a inherent debate about the value of formal education about how far it can take you about how far is really necessary so I mean I do you have a take on that do you have an opinion on about how about how far in your career formal education can really take you beyond um, your just natural talent and effort well, I think it, it really has to do with where you want to go. I think if you're trying to get more into academia, being in academia is the way to pursue it, and that's your end goal. Though I know plenty of musicians that were in the middle of their bachelor's degree and dropped out to practice, and they want a job with an orchestra, and that's where they've been the majority of their life, and maybe heading off in a different direction now, though that's where they started. So I'd have to say it really depends on what you want to do, because if, if you're something that school does offer is a lot of connections, not just to the faculty members that you're working with, but also to the 
the colleagues that you're around, <laughs> all the other students are going to be the next generation of performers and teachers and administrators. So you're, I think one of the key things to remember is don't piss anyone off. <laughs> you got to be friends with everybody in this industry because you're going to encounter everybody again. There's no like, oh, they don't matter. They're going to fade away. They're going to be across the world or whatever. No, you're going to encounter them because the world of musicians is small and it grows smaller. Every person you meet, you're like, oh, you know this person and that person. Oh, I wonder what they said about me or whatever. You know, you got to remember that, you know, you're constantly going to run into the same people <laughs> throughout life. Going off of that, this is a question I feel like comes up a lot on here, just the idea of maintaining and establishing those relationships. How do you feel like you have to approach something like that? You know, as somebody who has probably been, you know, propositioned to be a part of existing ensembles and stuff like that, is there ever any compromises that you feel like you have to make in order to maintain relationships like that? Or is it pretty natural? That's interesting. Yeah, I think when whenever you're going into an ensemble, I think it's important to realize your role and your role is to participate unless you're a leader unless you're the conductor unless you're you know a director of some sort your role is to participate and contribute yes your ideas but your role is not to um, lecture <laughs> so I, I think that's a that's a possible pitfall for some people that are new into uh, being in an ensemble is you have to find a way to contribute your, your ideas without lecturing and so that that could be one of the biggest uh, downfalls is if you have your you have too many convictions about the music <laughs> and you're too strong in those standpoints then it, it, it could come off as oh this person's a know-it-all and they're trying to lead a group from their section point of view so yeah it's you, you have to maintain relationships and and that that kind of goes along with not being married to your ideas because you have to realize that you're a contributing member equally with everyone else in the group so it, it's yeah, it's easy to be really gung-ho about Brahms or your Dvorak or Haydn or whatever. Though you have to realize that everybody has an idea and possibly as strong in their conviction about the music as you. So yeah, that's that's one thing to be careful of. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So how does that how does that come up when you are performing like as a solo artist as opposed to being an ensemble? What are the contrasts there since you've had plenty of opportunity to do both? I think as a solo artist, I think it's it's still the same ideas. Your contribution is the solo. So unless it's affecting how you are bringing your part across, you gotta have to be careful where you give advice. Because when you're a soloist with an orchestra, for instance, there's you, the soloist, and then there's the conductor who's leading the ensemble. And then there's the concertmaster, and then there's the section leaders, and so you would be stepping on a lot of toes to just stand up and start telling people how to play their parts. And so I'd say you have to be very careful about how you give out your opinions, just because it, it 
you have to realize that everybody's holding their own role. So unless it's affecting how you bring your part across, then let people do their jobs. <laughs> so do you prefer when you are truly solo and you're the only one, you know, performing? Like when you're doing these pieces right now, when you're performing the box suites and it's just you, it's just you and the instrument, well, is that more comfortable for you then? No, I think it's a lot scarier. <laughs> I think me and the music is, uh, is, is there's a lot more... Oh, it's just way scarier. Being the only one, then it's all on you. There's nothing to hide behind, not that we should hide on stage. <laughs> but when you're working with a partner, there's a lot of back and forth. Because in working such as a collaborative duo of cello and piano, there's so much that's involved in the pianist part as well as, you know, the cellist part. So there's a lot of collaboration. So uh, you'll see in Brahms' music and Debussy's music, it's not just the cellist playing and the pianist is in the background, but they're equally as important. So yeah, I think it's a lot scarier playing solo cello music than playing with an ensemble or what have you. How do you decide what kind of pieces you want to perform? I mean, since you had such a huge variety of stuff that you played, like. Are you, are you just in the vein of like constantly trying something new or is there a theme that you feel like you approach when you're looking for music to play? Oh, I'm, I'm constantly trying to find ways to connect different pieces of music for programming ideas. For instance, I recently was awarded a grant for presenting Judaism in the arts from the Hillel Center here on the ASU campus. And my idea was to put all of Ernest Bloch's music together. So he was uh, an American composer that uh, had a lot of ins influence from uh, his Jewish past. And uh, actually, kind of a little tidbit, he was the first president of the Cleveland Institute of Music where I did my undergrad and master's. So there's a little bit of connection there. I was exposed to his music actually a little bit before that before I went to Cleveland but his music I, I feel is not played enough and so one of the things I look for in deciding music is yeah what can I bring out that isn't played enough and how can I connect different music together to present strong ideas on a program and I just pick music I love playing <laughs> at the same time there's so much awesome music out there that I want to incorporate, that I, I want to tackle and learn and add to my repertoire. So I'm constantly looking for what I love. Do you think that maybe as artists in general, not even just musicians, that there's a responsibility to kind of dig into your own cultural background for inspiration? I mean, do you feel like if someone is Jewish, they should be looking into Ernest Block? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I'm not Jewish myself, but I kind of grew up with a, a big exposure to that culture. And for instance, right now in school, I'm taking a world music ensembles class. And my project for the semester is putting together and teaching and developing a teaching philosophy around a ethnic group's music. And so I actually chose 
jug band music <laughs> coming from Kentucky, and because uh, it's a small enough sector of of a genre that you know it's kind of an ethnic background, cultural, maybe underrepresented <laughs> genre. So. Yeah, that's what I chose for my project. So yeah, I'm totally looking into my roots of the music of Appalachia and the folk traditions that preceded me. <laughs> um, so how do you approach teaching yourself? That's kind of jump totally tensionally into, into that. It's something I was curious about is that you, I saw that you did private lessons as well as obviously in the, the collegiate setting. So how, how do you feel like you, you go about your own personal method? Is it different within those two settings? Well, I have to approach each student differently because every student is going to learn with a different style. They may be more of someone that learns from listening to verbal instruction and there may be some that learn more from demonstration or from listening or have like a global learning perspective where they kind of pick from different parts. And so I have to, I have to approach every student uniquely. And I guess the first thing that I, I focus on is making sure the student has a solid technical approach. So making sure they're able to do their scales and arpeggios and etudes and everything that's so important. And, you know, when I was younger, I kind of missed the importance of that. And as I grew older and I started incorporating more of that technique practice into my playing, I'm like, hey, guess what? I'm getting better. <laughs> so uh, I've kind of learned the importance of, you know, the proper etude. And because like, etudes are kind of overlooked in the Suzuki method normally, right? They're kind of... Actually, not really. They're, I mean, there, there are a few pieces that are very etude-like. In fact, there's a piece that's called etude. <laughs> and it was something that's actually uh, focused on in the Suzuki method that I find myself focusing a lot on is tone. And so they call it tonalization, which Suzuki found that vocalists, uh, he was exposed to this because his wife was a vocalist, vocalists spend a, a lot of their time focusing on these exercises called vocalizations and that's to vo focus on the vocal tone. It's like well, why don't we have exercises that focus on the tone of the cello or the tone of the violin and that's where he invented the term tonalization and so we have a lot of these exercises so that there are elements of the Suzuki method that focus on that and there are a lot of supplementary materials that uh, teachers today will involve in their teaching that have etudes associated with them. So yeah, in terms of what I incorporate and how I approach my teaching, I find myself focusing a lot on, the, on sound production, creating a pure and beautiful clear tone and um, yeah, I think comes back to my roots of how I was raised with with uh, learning music. Now, do you feel like you have a different attitude maybe as a teacher when you are in a classroom setting as opposed to maybe when someone's approaching you through your site and like that? <clears throat> classroom setting, how? Well, I suppose when you're, I mean, you're working as a teaching assistant now, and I know, so, I mean, I guess when you're working within that type of setting where someone is there to be a music student and they're like coming to you for guidance as a music student when you are a 
music professor for as opposed to I know that you offer private lessons and stuff outside of that. Yeah, I, I'd say there's there's a, a bit of a different approach because they they are in school with the intent to have a, a career in music. Yeah. I think there's a lot more a, a different kind of motivation that I uh, bring to the lessons. And with my them with my young students, with my younger students, there's a lot more. How can I inspire this student to want to learn, or want to play, or want to practice? <laughs> this is probably the biggest thing. How how can I get them to want to <laughs> take this and go practice it at home? Uh, whereas in my upper level teaching, there's a lot more of push. You really need to do this, and you need to be doing this and this, and in, in your practicing. Because they've already decided, I want to make this my profession, you know. And so there's a lot more guidance of this is how you can make this part of your playing better. You should be focusing on this. Uh, this is kind of what's missing and what you need to be doing uh, approach. There's a lot more dry honesty, <laughs> I'd say, <laughs> in the collegiate teaching. Fair. Now, I mean, when it comes to teaching those young students, though, I saw that in your biography that you... You've done quite a few competitive things with music. Like you've won quite a few um, like opportunities to play with larger concertos and stuff like that. How important do you feel like that competitive edge is when you're developing yourself? I think it teaches you how to play under stress <laughs> because those are probably some of the most stressful environments. Is to go up on stage and realize, oh, something is on the line, whether it's money or the decision of the judges. And so I, uh, I am always challenging myself to uh, better different aspects of my playing or my approach to performance. And so I, I think being a part of competitions is kind of one way to make a name for yourself, though it's not the only way. I think developing relationships with people around you is probably a, a better way, though it's kind of a quick quick route to, to be a part of uh, competitions to get your name out there a little more. I don't think there's any one competition that leads to a career in music. I, I've learned that there's no just like one quick way to success but that there's like a constant cultivation of your career just throughout probably like any profession. I think that's probably a good time to start wrapping things up. I do like to ask a couple questions at the end. First off, any other artists in Phoenix that you want to give some recognition to, want to give a shout out to? But I have to say probably the biggest one is my teacher, Tom Lanshoot. And he's not just in Phoenix, he's around the globe. Right now he's on tour with an ensemble I forget the name, it's something like the Olympic Ensemble, but it may be in French or something. <laughs> and uh, they're on tour in Europe right now. So me and the other cello TDA are holding down the fort. So the other guy I'd have to give a shout out to is Matt Allen, a great colleague of mine and a longtime friend uh, who's also a cellist. <laughs> So yeah, I think those those are probably the two biggest influences in my life right now that are helping me out through my goals and ambitions. Excellent. Now, any kind of personal projects, websites, anything you want to promote? So yeah, my website is wesleyskinnercellist.com and go and check out my calendar, see what I'm up to. Uh, right now, 
I, I have just a couple of things going on, performances with TCA, and as I mentioned, uh, so there's there's the block performance that's happening this Friday at 6 p.m. This and, is coming out on uh, next Wednesday, so Wednesday the uh, right. 22nd. Oh, okay, yeah. so <laughs> a, after that, yeah. then uh, I guess the, uh, you can check out, the, I'm, I'm always playing with the ASU Symphony Orchestra, and uh, specifically for me, I'm I'm giving the performance at the Tempe Festival for the Arts on December 3rd. And yeah, so you can just follow me on my website or on my Facebook page and uh, check out what else I have coming up in the future. Excellent. And the last thing I'd like to ask, if you had one piece of advice that you wanted to pass on to somebody who was looking to go down your path today, what would you want to tell them? I guess I mentioned it a little bit earlier, the piece of advice that I try to give everybody is that your network is not just a group of colleagues but it's like a group of friends you've got to create um, you know relationships with people it's not a network of business opportunities but it's more like I find myself working with the people that I kind of resonate most closely with on a personal level and and then you know that that kind of led me to start thinking about you know how what what's uh what is audience building and and i find that's that's more like community building is the people that are going to support you from a community (laughs) standpoint are your audience so again it's it's all about relationships and the human connection all about relationships i love it all right wesley thank you so much for your time (laughs) thanks for having me Special thanks to Nick Machete for writing our theme music and Taylor Machete for all of her support. If you are enjoying the podcast so far, don't forget to follow us and leave nice ratings on Facebook, Twitter, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Pinecast.co. And if you or someone you know is pursuing something artistic in the Phoenix area and you'd like to be on the podcast, write to me at starvingartistphx at gmail.com.